You know, last week was Easter, and we talked about just really, A, the glory of the resurrection, and just how when Jesus died and was raised from the dead, it brought us life. But if you're like me, and I know some of you are not like me at all, but some of you, you are, and sometimes it just feels like it's so hard to believe the things that, that we say we believe as Christians. And for sure, the world finds the story and the claims of Christianity very hard to believe. And one of the things that struck me is I was thinking about, you know, what do we do after Easter? And just recognizing, like, when you read the rest of the story, when you read the gospel, it doesn't stop on Easter Day. There's actually more story to tell. And so often we come to Easter Day and we have our celebration, and then, you know, we kind of jump back into other things. And I don't know how many of you have already felt like you've jumped back into other things. Like, life is going on, and Easter was a week ago, and now it's back to whatever I had going before. Do you feel like that? Anyone? Is it just me? Maybe it's just me. Uh, but, but I know that can happen. And, you know, when you look at the way the church traditionally has celebrated Easter, you guys might not know this because, you know, we come from a, this church has Baptistic roots and, and Baptists typically don't do things like the church calendar. You know, there's this traditional church calendar out there that's been in, you know, in the works for, for over, you know, 1,500 years and and one of the things that happens in the church calendar is that on the day of Easter, that's just the beginning of an Easter season. And so we're still in Easter. And we're going to be in Easter, I believe, until Pentecost. Is that right, Jerry? Until Pentecost, which is when the Holy Spirit comes uh, on the disciples and the apostles in Jerusalem. And we, we read about that in Acts 2. It's also the day that Moses received the law on Mount Sinai. And Pentecost literally means 50 days. So it's You've got the seven weeks from Easter, that's 49 days, and then one more Sunday is 50 days. And so, you know, we'll, we'll let you know when Pentecost is coming, but we're in Easter until then, and we're to be reminded of the glory of the Lord in the resurrection for this time of year. So as I was reading, and kind of, I, I chose to look in Luke chapter 24 to see what was it like for those early followers of Jesus when they found out about the resurrection, And you know what I noticed? For them, it was hard to believe. It was hard to believe. And they were there. They were there, and it was hard to believe. So it's no shame to admit that, you know, sometimes I struggle to believe. You know, sometimes I I feel very confident in my faith most of the time. But there are those days I wake up, and I'm like, wow, what if... What if all of this didn't happen? Do you ever think, do you ever wonder, what if? what if? What if all this time in my life that has been devoted to this thing, what if, what if it weren't true? And you know, if it weren't true, I for one, and don't, don't be alarmed, I, I do believe it's true, <laughs> but if it weren't true, I for one, I would be the first one out of here. And I don't mean that in any kind of negative way, but like, I don't want to follow something that isn't real. I don't want to believe in a God that's not there. I don't want to put my trust in a Savior who didn't die and rise from the dead. You know, I want the real thing. And that's, there's some of that here in our text. So if you have your Bible, open to Luke 24. If you don't have it, there's one around you in the, underneath the seats. And if you're at home, feel free to pull up a web browser or here on your phone, however you'd like to go to Luke 24 and come there with me. 
Because when we read this story, and we're not going to read the whole thing. We'll go through about verse 35 if we have time because we are a little short. But I just want to read for you what happened for those early believers on Easter morning. Now, last week I mentioned when we wake up on Easter, we're excited, right? We're, we're enthused. Even if you didn't sleep that well, a lot of times on Easter, you have a little bit more spring in your step. But for the first disciples, when they woke up on Easter morning, they were dragging because they were going to finish the burial process for their friend, for the man they thought was their Messiah, and for for the person they hoped would be their Redeemer. And so their hopes were dashed when they woke up on that first Easter morning. And this is what it says in Luke 24, starting in verse 1. It says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they prepared and went to the tomb. Isn't that just like women in a positive way? They're the ones who get up early and get the job done, right? Uh, I don't know where the disciples were. I don't know if they were sleeping in or if they were feeling sorry for themselves. I don't know, but they were not there. It was these women, and we're going to learn a little bit more about them in a moment. But it says, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb where Jesus had been buried, right? But When they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood before them. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? And this is what Jesus said to them. The Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite term for himself. And by the way, Son of Man does not prove his humanity. Ironically, Son of Man proves his deity because in the book of Daniel, the Son of Man is the one who sits at the right hand of God in heaven, in that throne room in heaven, who is God himself. So the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. So imagine you're there. You're, you've got, you know, whatever kind of bag or box of, of their supplies that they had taken to finish the burial process. Because remember, Jesus had died on a Friday. The sun's going down. The Sabbath is starting. The Jewish people are not to work on the Sabbath. And they're certainly not to be handling dead people on the Sabbath. And so they place him in the tomb, roll the stone over the tomb to protect him and also as a guard against grave robbers because of who Jesus was. There were, there were Roman guards on the tomb and when they show up on Sunday morning to finish the process, the tombstone is rolled away and the body's gone. How would you feel in that moment? How would you feel if you were going to bury your loved one and the body was missing? How much more so not only is he your friend, but again, your, your hope for salvation, your hope for God's redemption and for the kingdom of God on earth. But he's not there. But then these, really, these angels are there. And the angels say, look, didn't he tell you he had to rise from the dead? And it seems like these women, they believe. They believe. So they run back. It says, verse 9, they came back from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and do all the others. The 11 are the apostles. Remember, Judas is gone. He, he has hung himself 
because he betrayed Jesus, but the 11 other apostles are there, and there's other disciples that are with them. And, and he says that it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Now, I know you guys have heard of mansplaining. I don't have to tell you about mansplaining, right? That's a little joke, guys. Come on, work with me here. <laughs> My wife's like, yeah. Uh, they're like, yeah, oh, sure, these women. These women are going to tell us that Jesus is raised from the dead. That's nonsense. They're crazy. They don't know what they're talking about. Did you guys know that in that time, women were not even allowed to testify in a court of law? Women were not trusted. Um, uh, their testimony was not trusted. But God chooses to reveal this first to women. Something to notice. And the women tell the men, and the men don't believe them. Something to notice. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. And bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. He went away, wondering what happened here. He had already been told what happened. We know from the book of John that John was with him. And John didn't know what happened. He's perplexed. He's amazed. He's doubtful. When the apostles find the empty tomb, they are perplexed and amazed and doubtful. They don't believe it. It's hard to believe. If you ever get frustrated when you're sharing the gospel with someone you care about and they don't believe it, look, the apostles didn't believe it. Right? The earliest followers of Jesus didn't believe it. You see, the gospel is simple, but it's not easy to believe. Right? The thing is, this, this story that we base our whole faith on is really simple. God became man. He died on a cross for your sins, paid the penalty for them, rose from the dead to show and illustrate that he had conquered sin and death, and now the life that he lives can be applied to you after the sin you had done had been applied to him. Okay, that's, that's pretty simple. I mean, you might need to hear it a couple of times to get all the pieces down, but it's not complex. But who in the world is going to believe that? What kind of crazy, motley crew of people is going to believe that message aside from us? Right? It does sound like nonsense, doesn't it? It does. But then you, you start asking these questions. How, how can a man really defeat death? Did Jesus really come back from the dead? Was he really raised from the dead? You know, throughout history, there have been numerous theories about how Jesus was seen to be dead and seen to be alive. Oh, he was mostly dead. He was almost dead. But he wasn't fully dead. Thank you, Alyssa. He, he, uh, he was beaten within an inch of his life, but he recovered. Now, you have to believe that he was beaten within an inch of his life, and then three days later, he was totally fine. Okay? I mean, this is not really like a viable theory. There are people who believe it was an imposter who revealed himself. So you have to believe that Jesus' own mother couldn't recognize her son, and the men who had traveled with him for three years couldn't recognize their friend after he was raised from the dead. 
Don't ask me how those scars were found on his wrists and his side. You know, there's all sorts of theories. The, the body was stolen by grave robbers, and then the disciples just pretended that they'd seen him. We're, we're going to come back to that one because that one's particularly, uh, it makes us feel particularly vulnerable sometimes, but it's particularly easy to overcome that objection. Uh, but then when you think theologically, how can one man redeem another man? You know, for the Jewish people, this was hard to understand. And it still is. How can a human being redeem another human being? We actually looked last week, I think, um, where the Bible says that one man cannot redeem another man. You know? So Jesus had to be special. He had to be different. And then there's this question. Why would the Savior of humanity have to die? Here it says in verse 7, The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day raised again. Peter, John, Andrew, all the others, they heard Jesus say that, and they thought he was wrong. They didn't believe him. They didn't understand him. Peter rebukes Jesus when Jesus says he has to die. Can you imagine? Jesus had just said, uh, Peter had just said that Jesus was the Messiah. Peter had just said that he was the chosen one of God. And then he begins to instruct the chosen one of God on what the God wants him to do. And this is that famous moment where Jesus says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're trying to keep me from the very thing that the Father sent me here to do. That's a satanic, uh, a, a satanic act to try to keep Jesus from going to the cross. They didn't believe him, even when he told him. And then, of course, why should we believe any of this? Why should we believe any of this? So that's what I hope to answer today. It's why we should believe any of this. Now, like our friends and neighbors and our family members, like us sometimes, there were followers of Jesus who didn't believe. And we see in verse 13... One of the stories of these followers of Jesus. It's a very famous story, but read with me starting in verse 13 of Luke 24. It says, Now the same day, that that means Sunday, this is the first Easter Sunday. The same day, two of them, meaning two of these people who followed Jesus, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Hey guys, what's the news? And they stood still, their faces downcast. I I imagine that might have been one of these. How in the world do you not know what's going on? How in the world? And uh, it says, Cleopas asked him, "Are are you... The only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know that these these things that have happened here in these days? Are you the only person in all Jerusalem who didn't hear about the hosannas and the shouts of acclamation just a week ago? And then on Friday, the crucify him, crucify him, and then hear that Jesus, the one we'd hoped was the Messiah, was put up on a cross and put to death by the Roman centurions? Are you the only one? And are you the only one who doesn't know that we buried our friend and Savior? Are you the only one 
who hasn't heard about this? And Jesus answers, and I love the way Jesus answers. He's like, huh? What things? What are you guys talking about? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. And in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen visions of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Jesus says to them, how foolish you are. How foolish you are. Imagine asking, imagine you get to heaven, you know, you go through the gates, right? And like, hey, what do you want to do now you're in heaven? Oh, I want to go see Jesus. And then you go up to Jesus and you ask him a question and he says, you foolish person. Can you imagine? That would probably be one of the most deflating experiences that you could have in the presence of, of your Lord. But Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He says, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Didn't he? Wasn't it necessary for him to suffer? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, here's the thing. If you, if any of you grew up Catholic, then you know that there's this whole entire system in place. There's the Pope, there's the cardinals, there's the, the councils, the church councils, and they interpret the scripture so that you know what it's saying. And then, about a little over 500 years ago, there was this movement called the Protestant Reformation. And the churches said, basically, with varying degrees of, of how they explained it, we could interpret the scriptures for ourselves. But you know what? If you were a follower of Jesus, if you were uh, an Israelite, living in this time, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the everyday person knew the Scripture. They knew the Scripture. But they didn't know how to interpret it. The Scripture, if we're being honest, does not interpret itself. It's hard work to interpret Scripture sometimes. It's long work sometimes. We get it wrong sometimes. The problem is, I know, I mean, this is a totally random number, but let's just say that a third of everything I think about the Bible is wrong. The problem is, I don't know which third is wrong. It's hard work. So Jesus begins to interpret the Scripture. So they need an interpreter. Who is and what is the thing that interprets Scripture? Ultimately, Jesus interprets Scripture. Ultimately, Jesus' life interprets Scripture. When you read the Old Testament and you read about the suffering servant who is stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God, you don't know who that is until Jesus is put up on that cross, put to death, and then raised again. 
And my friends, if he wasn't raised again, you still wouldn't know it was about him. But here's the other thing. Jesus' life does not interpret itself either. Just because a guy died and came back to life, that doesn't mean anything. Lazarus died and came back to life. Do you pray to him? Is he your savior? Has he taken his sin, your sins upon himself? Of course not. It's this interaction between the life of Jesus and the words of Scripture that only as they come together do you see the, the truth that kind of like blossoms out of that combination. And so what Jesus does is he, he brings it, he, he, he comes to them and he opens up the Scripture, but he inserts himself into what the Scriptures say so that they can see both what the Scriptures mean and what his life and what his reality means. And guys, that's still true for us today. The Scripture won't interpret itself. But as we look at the Scripture through the lens of Jesus, and as we look at Jesus through the lens of the Scripture, we begin to see a very clear picture. We see a clear picture that we can trust. Now look, there's a lot of things in the Bible that I might get wrong, but I have never, ever, ever seen anything in Scripture or in the life of Jesus that made me doubt the gospel. I have no doubt that what the Bible is telling us is that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and mine and that he rose again showing and illustrating that God had received him as a perfect sacrifice and that through his death and resurrection then I can die to sin and be alive to God. There's nothing that changes that. Nothing. And so in, in Jesus, we read the Scripture rightly. And with the Scripture, we read Jesus rightly. And that's what Jesus is doing for these guys in Emmaus. Because the thing is, the disciples had no interpretive categories for what they were seeing when they went and found an empty tomb. Which is mind-blowing to us, because Jesus had told them. But they just didn't have, they, it's like they didn't even have a framework that they could fit that reality into. So they thought, these women are crazy. Since I can't understand it, they're crazy. My, life, my wife is laughing. That's not, that's not a joke. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so they just couldn't understand it. But Jesus, he begins to unfold the scripture for them. He says he explained all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, we don't know what he went to. Maybe he went to Psalm 22, that psalm that says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And talks about the Son of God. The chosen one being beaten, being scorned, being mocked. Maybe he goes to uh, Isaiah uh, 53. Maybe he goes there, and, which is the passage about that suffering servant that I just mentioned that talks about how they would cast lots for his clothes and you know, all these things that were true of Jesus. We don't know. We don't know what he said. But what happens is, as they approached the village to which they were going, this is verse 28, Jesus continued on as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us. It is nearly evening. The day is almost over. A little bit for his safety, a little bit because they wanted to hear more. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he broke bread. We prayed about breaking the bread today, didn't we? When Jesus breaks bread, it's reminiscent of that final supper. 
He gives thanks. He breaks it and he begins to give it to them. And their eyes are open and they recognize him. They had been blinded to who Jesus was. And we don't know if they were blinded by their unbelief or if they were spiritually prevented from seeing who Jesus was. Either one. But then they could see. And as soon as they could see, he disappears from their sight. Isn't that just like Jesus? You feel like you felt like, oh, now I see you, Lord, and then where did he go? <laughs> Does he feel like that sometimes? Yeah, it can. And they ask each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. They probably ran back those seven miles. And they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. So when they got back, Jesus had already appeared to Peter. How did he do that? How did he go to Emmaus and appear to Peter at the same time? The mysteries of Christ. And then the two told what had happened to them on the way and how Jesus was recognized then when he broke the bread. And we're going to end there. You know, here's the thing. Uh, The faith that you have, the faith that I have, uh, I can't prove it. And you can't prove it either. I cannot prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's a God. I can't prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus lived. I can't prove to you that he died. I can't prove to you that he rose again. But faith can be supported. There is such a thing as evidence. Now, we shouldn't be worried about this too much. You ever watch one of those crime shows and they say, where were you on the night of January 5th? And the person tells them. If someone asked me, where were you on the night of January 5th? I would have no answer for them. (laughs) I don't know where, I don't even know, I don't know, what was that, three months ago? Does anyone know where they were the night of January 5th? You know what I'd have to do? I have to start reconstructing my day with my calendar. Now, Hopefully, Beth's watching. Beth knows that my calendar is not, it's not exhaustive. Okay, there are a lot of things I do that never make it on the calendar, mostly because I don't have the diligence to put them on there, right? So I might have no idea what I did, and I certainly don't schedule my evenings unless there's some big thing going on. But what if I did have the calendar entry, and it said on January 5th, you know, I was meeting with such and such at 6.30, and I show the the police officer, well, here's the evidence. Does he have to believe that evidence? Does that prove anything? No. So then I go to the guy and say, hey, can you tell the police that I was with you on January 5th? He's like, I don't know where I was January 5th. And he's going and does the same thing. Oh, yeah, we were together. Does that prove that we were together? No, it doesn't. What if there were video footage of us together and at the bottom it said January 5th? Would that be proof? No. No. I mean, can you prove much of anything? Can any, I mean, you would have a hard time proving what you had for dinner last night. Very hard time. There would be chemists involved. It would not be pretty. But faith can be supported. There is evidence. And here's the thing. If the evidence refutes your faith, it's bad faith. Okay? With this caveat. Sometimes we interpret things wrongly, right? I mean, both 
uh, Amanda and Sonia were talking about trusting that God is bigger than the things we see around us. Sometimes it looks like everything's falling apart, and that's just, when, that's just how God likes it, so he can show how great he is. Sometimes you need some perspective. But look, if the followers of Christ never saw God's faithfulness, their faith would be really bad faith. If the followers of Christ and the things that the Bible said never happened, never came true, that's bad faith. But if the things that God says he's going to do happen consistently, that's evidence. Now, of course, we know in Hebrews it says that faith is the evidence of things that we can't see. So is God real? Well, in some ways, the only evidence we have is that we believe him. But we believe him because there's other evidence. It gets kind of weird. But in the end, you're like, okay, this is reasonable. And truth is supported by evidence. Okay? What you need in the courtroom is you need a preponderance of evidence. You need enough evidence to make it look like it's reasonable to believe that that happened. Look, he's got his calendar entry. Look, the guy that he said he was with confirmed that he was with him. And there's a videotape of them together, and it says January 5th. That's going to be good enough for us. It's not beyond a shadow of any doubt. It's beyond a reasonable doubt, right? That's how we believe things. Beyond a reasonable doubt, I believe that I had pizza last night. I can't prove it, okay? I can show you the pizza boxes. I can show you the leftovers. But short of hiring a chemist, I cannot prove that I had pizza last night. But I'm pretty confident about it. Well, some of those things are like Jesus. Um, And what Jesus does is he actually helps us to believe. He helps us to understand and verify what he's saying is true. Now, how does he do that? Okay. And if this, we're going to like kind of draw it to a close here, so it's going to be kind of quick. How does Jesus prove that what he said is true? Number one, there was an empty tomb. There was an empty tomb. And there's all the kind of theories about what really happened there. But the tomb was empty. And here's the thing. Historians from that time period agree that the tomb was empty. Now, yes, historians 2,000 years ago didn't use the same methods that historians use today. But that doesn't mean that their testimony is not valid. It is valid. There were people there who acknowledged that the tomb was empty. There are records that Jesus was killed by the Romans, and there's records that afterwards his body was not found and people gathered in his name that were from that time period. The tomb was empty. Yeah, did, did, did Jesus get within an inch of his life and then three days later walking around like there was no problem? No, that didn't happen. Did someone steal his body and then someone else pretended to be Jesus and fooled his mother and his best friends and everyone who knew him? That didn't happen. That's beyond a reasonable doubt. That did not happen. Did the disciples steal his body and pretend that they saw him so that they could start a religion? All right. This is, in some ways, a challenging uh, uh, opposition to our faith, right? Because they could have done that. But let me ask you this. Would you guys, in this room, would you be willing to be persecuted, lose your income, be on the run, and then murdered in really painful ways for what we're doing here if we all knew it were a lie? 
Can you think of any collection of people where all of them would be willing to do that? By the way, the final theory is a mass hallucination. That's, there's never been a mass hallucination where everyone hallucinated the exact same thing. doesn't happen. So there's an empty tomb. And then, not only is there an empty tomb, angels showed up and told them what happened. Have you ever seen an angel? I haven't either. But if one told me what happened, I would likely believe them. They've got really good insight into what's going on. Right? Then what Jesus does is he says, look guys, remember everything the Bible said about what would happen in the future? All of it happened to me. I honestly don't think that Jesus just pointed to Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. It says he started with Moses and all the prophets. What is the pattern of all the prophets in the scripture? Have you ever seen a prophet that wasn't persecuted? I mean... There's a couple, there's a few, two. Sonia says there's two of them. Two of them that weren't persecuted. They suffered, the, 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 the prophets suffered. And not only did they suffer, the prophets told that there would be one who would suffer and they told that he would not be held down by death. And then Jesus said it was going to happen. He's also a prophet. His testimony counts too. If someone tells you, I'm going to die, and three days later come back from the dead, and then they do, they're trustworthy. Okay? Empty tomb, angelic visitation. Jesus reminds them of all the prophecies that point to him. It's been said, there was a, um, there was a mathematician who calculated, you know how you can calculate the probability of something happening? Like if you, if you flip a coin, what's the chances it's going to come up heads? It's one and two, right? But if you flip a coin ten times, the chances of it coming up heads is way higher. Does that make sense? Because out of all those ten, you multiply the likelihood until you get a higher likelihood that in ten flips, you're going to get at least one heads. Does that make sense? Okay. So the more uh, times you do something, the higher the number. But in the same way, if you say, what are the chances that this event will happen... That number could be, let's say it's 1 in 10 that Jesus would have his clothes, instead of torn, that they would cast lots for them. Okay, he has no control over it. Let's say it's 1 in 10. But if you have another event that happens at the exact same time that's also 1 in 10, now you're 1 in 100. So there was a mathematician who looked at eight events in Jesus' life that he couldn't control that were prophesied by Scripture, and the number of the, the, the likelihood was 1 to 10 to the 17th power. That's a 10 with 17 zeros. And he said it was like taking quarters and covering the entire state of Texas with the number of quarters, 1.7 with, uh, with 17 zeros, and then blindfolding someone and telling them to scour around Texas and pick up one coin and find the one that had a mark on it. Jesus can't control these things. They happened. And then what else proof does Jesus offer? He shows up and talks with them and breaks bread with them. And we don't read it in this story, but he actually lets them put their fingers in his scars. I just have this weird image of Jesus in his little in his robe thing, and he's like, here, let me show you this scar. <laughs> you know, it's like, 
your weird Uncle Freddy who wants to show you his scars, you know, but they're like, ah, and they stick their fingers in his scars. That's not a copycat. So look, Jesus' death, it's not a contradiction to him being the Savior. It's the confirmation that he's the Savior. Um, Jesus' resurrection, because it's uh, grounded in Scripture and, and talked about in Scripture, it's not just another person, just another person coming back from the dead. He's not just another Lazarus. His resurrection means something different because the Bible spoke about what it meant before it happened. He spoke about what it meant before it happened. And then Jesus' death, when it's interpreted by the Scripture, also then interprets the Scriptures. You know, it's this, all these things come together. And then finally, we have this. And don't discount this. And don't let anyone discount this for you. This is a reliable document. How do I know? Well, everything that someone would do to fake a reliable document is missing. If you were going to fake a document, who would you have discover the missing, to- the empty tomb? Reputable men. Well, we don't get reputable men. We get a woman who maybe was a prostitute. Um, we get James's mother. He's not reliable. She's definitely got an agenda. And they're and they're women. Right? You don't do that. You, you find reliable men. Paul says, we read this last week in 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Jesus appeared to over 500 people. And you kind of get the idea that Paul has like a list of names in his back pocket. He's like, you want to talk to Freddie? You want to talk to John? You know, go down the list. Which one do you want to talk to? They'll confirm it. I've got 500 witnesses. The Old Testament says you need two or three witnesses. Paul had 500 that you don't you can't you can't just make that up because then people will go ask those people and it's not like you know Paul's in some you know he's on his missionary journey and all but it's not like none of those people go to Jerusalem all these Jewish people they go to Jerusalem they can ask these people and then again the apostles face death for preaching this message the only person of Jesus' apostles that we do not think died a gruesome death was John. John seems to be the only one who died of old age. Peter was crucified upside down. Thomas, I think, also was crucified. Some of them were stoned, beaten, bludgeoned to death. This is not a a, uh, climb the social ladder scheme. This is how do I debase myself to be the worst of the worst in society? I know, I'll proclaim Christ. You don't do that for a lie. And then finally, what do you do? How do you portray the leaders of the church if you want to affirm the validity of their testimony? You make them out to be heroes. Do you know who's not a hero in the Bible? Peter. Peter denies Christ three times. He thinks that the women are crazy. He sees the empty tomb and still doesn't believe. And then... He continues to kind of stick his foot in his mouth. And then finally, after the Holy Spirit comes and he's all, you know, into his apostolic ministry and everything, you know what he does? He goes to hang out with Paul, refuses to eat with Gentiles, and gets called out publicly. This is not the guy that you would create as the one whose testimony you want to trust. They're floundering leaders over and over. You know, so is it hard to believe 
Yeah, it's hard to believe. And you know what? Sometimes things that are too good to be true are true. That's just the case. Sometimes things that seem too good to be true are true. And this is one of them. And there's a lot of evidence for it. I can't prove it to you. And I certainly can't tell you how to prove it to your neighbor. But there's reason for confidence here. There's reason to be bold here. There's reason to speak out for the gospel and not be intimidated by people who don't believe it. You know, the thing is, even though it's hard to believe the gospel, we can have confidence in our faith when we're sharing it with others. We can have confidence in our faith when we doubt ourselves. We can go back and remind ourselves, no, there are good reasons to believe this. And then I'll end end with this. If there are good reasons to believe it, if it's true, and church, this is maybe more important than everything I've just said. If this is true, this is the most important thing that's ever happened in the history of anything. Okay? If you believe this is true, it makes absolutely no sense to live a quote-unquote normal life. If this is true, it makes absolutely no sense to not be bold. It makes absolutely no sense to not um, trust the Lord. Now, we do all sorts of things that don't make any sense. We're, we're faltering, uh, you know, uh, divided human beings, okay? So this is not an indictment. It's just a reminder. Don't ever, don't ever fall into the trap of thinking this is true and then also just living a blah life, okay? It doesn't make sense. And don't ever be scared when you share it with someone else. Don't ever be scared. You have good reasons. Jesus has given you many good reasons. And the fact that many of you in here, I would say probably all of you in here, have not only read these words, but you have had an experience with the risen Christ in your life. And when you experience the risen Christ in your life, that's the same kind of appearance. It looks different, but it's the same kind of appearance that those two guys on the road to Emmaus had. Because Jesus will come and he will illuminate these things for you. And he will confirm in your spirit that it's real. But look, we have all this evidence, all this evidence. So look, church, is it hard to believe? Yes, but it's good to believe. It's good to believe because it's true. And there's evidence, and you can have confidence in it. Let me pray for you. Well, Father, we, we come not because we have it all figured out to this place. We come not because we're so great that we uh, never lack confidence or that we never have doubts. But, but Lord, we come, uh, whether it's here this Sunday morning to gather together or whether it's coming to you in prayer, whatever it is, Lord, we come because uh, even in our doubts, even in our struggles, uh, we believe. We believe that you're there and that you can help us and that you're with us. So, Lord, as we leave today, as we go out of this place, um, help us to believe. Help us to trust. Lord, we don't want to be those people that say we believe and really do, but then live as if it's not true. We want to live as if it is true. So, Father, we put that before you, and um, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.